As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. As usual, uh, Matt Slater is alongside us, football news reporter at The Athletic. Coming up, we'll uh, talk about plans for Champions League reform, which have been thrown into doubt over a commercial rights row. So we'll look at the battle between Europe's top clubs and UEFA, examining why there is a rift and what reform would actually involve. We'll also hear Matt's interview with Damien Willoughby. He's Chief Executive Officer of City Football Group India about their plans to grow their brand in the region following success on the field with Mumbai City, winners of the Indian Super League. This is the Business of Sport from The Athletic. Let's get straight to it then, Matt, because on Tuesday you broke the exclusive that a decision on the revamp of the Champions League format had been delayed. We record this podcast on a Wednesday morning, so at sort of 10 past 10. Tell us how things stand at the moment, because they could change by the time this is released. I mean, I hope not, but possibly. <laughs> the key choreography of this week is on Monday, the European Club Association, which is the successor organisation of the G14 that people might remember. They, were the, they really were the rich club, aristocrat gang that made life quite difficult for the UEFA 10, 15 years ago and got an awful lot of concessions from them, i.e. the way the Champions League looks now, the way the money's distributed. A peace deal was put together between those two parties and they've been broadly in alignment ever since. And the G4 team was scrapped and a more inclusive organisation called the European Club Association was brought in. This is where all the numbers get silly. It wasn't even 14 clubs by the end. It already started to grow. It's now mushroomed. There are like 240 clubs. They're the, basically the best clubs from every league around Europe are in the ECA. But it is still really dominated by the big ones. Man United, Barca, Real, Bayern, they're all there on the on the board and they drive a lot of this. It's run by Andrea Agnelli, who of course also owns Juve. So that's the European Club Association. But by definition, there are there's a broad range of views there. You know, just from the English clubs, there are 10 English clubs in it. You've got the big six, but you've got Everton, Leicester, Newcastle and Villa. Now, they don't see eye to eye on everything we know from the Premier League. You've got clubs from Estonia, Latvia. It's just huge, right? And they're all supposed to have a voice, but that's just chaos, right? So they had a meeting on Monday. Now, they didn't agree. 
So we, this is all about the reform of the Champions League, how the Champions League is going to look and Europa League and Europa Conference League after season, well, starting from season 2024-25, because that's when, that's when there's a chance to have a look at it again. All the commercial and broadcast deals are sorted up till then. So there's been a big debate for the last two years about how those competitions are going to look. So on Monday, the ECA had a meeting and couldn't agree a common position. Now, that then fed into Tuesday's meeting, which is a UEFA meeting, Club Competitions Committee, where, again, a lot of the same people sit. It's much smaller. It's about 17, 18 clubs, but, again, dominated by ECA members. So UEFA hoped to hear from the ECA that they'd reached a common position. And, yes, we'll probably get into what the, uh, what the, the decision would be. But this meeting, the CCC meeting, said, sorry, we can't decide. So, um, yeah, we'll have to come back. Which meant today's scheduled meeting, today's meeting, which was a UEFA exco meeting, i.e. the top board of UEFA, was supposed to rubber stamp yesterday's meeting, but there was nothing to rubber stamp. And actually, for a moment, they actually cancelled the meeting. And then they went, oh, no, we better hold the meeting anyway and talk about some other stuff, five subs and a few other minor issues. So the whole thing's been parked for another two weeks. There's a UEFA Congress, which is the big annual meeting on April 20th. The day before a Congress, you have another exco. So the Champions League reform debate has been pushed back to April 19th, when I really do think they are going to have to decide something. What are they going to decide then? Well, I think they are going to decide we're going to have a Swiss model Champions League, which is uh, we're going to go from 32 teams to 36. It's going to be arranged instead of group stages, eight groups of four, it's going to be arranged as a 36-team league. Apparently you do this in chess tournaments you have a large number of people, but you haven't, got, you haven't got time for everyone to play everybody. So you play a selection of people. So the way this will work is probably 10 games. I think some of the domestic leagues would like it to be fewer, but that's what the big clubs want. 10 games, five at home, five away, not the same teams. You then get, your, you then get everyone ranked on a proper table. It'll be seeded. First eight go through to the last 16, as now, a knockout competition. Uh, teams 9 through 24 go through to a two-legged playoff and we get rid of the bottom 12. Now, that takes the Champions League group stage from 125 games as now to 225. So you're adding 100 games and you're playing 180 games before you've got rid of the bottom 12 teams. So a lot more football, a lot more congestion in the calendar. But a lot less jeopardy. Well, exactly. There's another less jeopardy element and this is, again, what the domestic leagues, Premier League, right at the front of this queue, are very angry about. So at the moment, you qualify for Europe. It's a reward through your domestic performance, through your domestic, you know, your performance in the domestic league the season before. The race for Europe and all that, which brings jeopardy, that key TV word, to your domestic league. So you're not just crowning a champion. You've got some, you know, meaningful fixtures right to the end, hopefully. Now... The proposal on the table, which has been cooked up by UEFA and the rich clubs of the ECA who drive the ECA, and this is very much UEFA giving them concessions again because the ECA will threaten to go off and form a European Super League, and UEFA doesn't want that because they need the money generated by the Champions League to fund all the good stuff they do and basically bankroll about half the European federations. The jeopardy being removed in this bit around access is those four extra places, so 32 to 36, at least two of them will be reserved for teams with good European pedigrees. So this will be done on their coefficient, another crazy term. 
basically how you've done in European competition over the previous five years. So you could get a situation where a team would finish in the Premier League in fifth, sixth or seventh, still a European place, but get leap, being able to leapfrog back into the Champions League. So a sort of a second bite at it. So a Liverpool, dare I say, or maybe a Juve in Italy, doesn't, doesn't qualify by right, but could get in to the Champions League because they've got a good European pedigree. As Kieran Maguire from Price of Football tweeted, uh, and friend of this pod as well, I mean, this was his tweet. This kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Champions League reforms postponed as proposals don't give enough power and control to the greedy. What looked appalling domestically under Project Big Picture is simply being transferred to UEFA instead. Does that sum it up? It does a bit because there's a, there's a sort of a third element. I've done the sort of rouse about uh, the number of games and access. There's yeah. a third element. And that's really why this week's meetings haven't quite gone as planned, as, as stage managed. The big clubs want a say on how the competition is sold and marketed as well. They want, they want to form a genuine joint venture with a meaningful joint venture. There is actually already one, but I don't want to get too complicated. They, they want to basically take over the, the selling and marketing of the Champions League because they have ideas. They have loads of ideas about how you televise this stuff, clips, highlight shows, type of sponsorship deals you might do. At the moment, that is done by UEFA. And it's, they, they basically do it for a, a marketing agency called Team. The big clubs at the ECA say, no, 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 we can do that. We're, we're good at that. We want to do it. UEFA wants to re- maintain some sort of control. They basically want a veto of the key decisions. This row over what UEFA is calling governance, what I'm calling kind of, you know, commercial rights. I wonder how much they've spoken to broadcasters on this, Matt. Don't you? Because <laughs> because it's all very well saying the way the Swiss model works, and as you say, everybody's in, in seeding groups. So the top teams will play each other in the Swiss model. So you, you, you would always get, a, you know, a Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain fixture within the Swiss model of the league. Mm. But who cares about it? Because they'll both go through. Good point. So if you go to broadcasters and, and commercial sponsors, you go, well, you know, re- really, in that sense, if they were in the same group of four, where they say, depending on how the seedings has, had worked, a Borussia Dortmund or a, a Napoli or a, you know, a Sevilla, and there's an, there's an element of jeopardy with that third side in there, then all of a sudden there is something on it. In a massive 36-team league where only 12 teams will go, Manchester City against Paris Saint-Germain is not going to have any effect on that league table at the end of it. Yeah, well, quite. So so you're absolutely right. So this this is the safety net. This is that. What, what are the big clubs terrified of? They're terrified of being knocked out or not invited to things. This, this basically gives them, uh, you know, a number of, of, of very sort of, sort of cushy, as I say, safety nets. And I think... If I was just going to play, well, it's not devil's advocate. This is this is this is what the ECA will tell you. People will still watch Bayern versus Man City, even if even if it's a group stage game. And then they'll also point out, well, look, the 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 example you've just uh, outlined there of a, of a of a really tight group. Well, there's 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 one out of eight, two out of eight a season. You know, most most yeah, of them they, are foregone. Yeah, most true, most yeah. of them are foregone conclusions, and the, and you and you end up with the best teams having 
nothing nothing really online on the line for the fifth or sixth game so it's not like we shouldn't have a sort of rose tinted view of the status quo no. the status quo is not that great yes there'll there'll, there'll be a what there'll be one or two groups because you'll have a good third team you might have a really competitive group with four but that doesn't happen that often so no. look i completely understand what you're saying you know too much of a good thing right that that scarcity value and i i very very rarely hear scarcity value as a principle in 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 particularly european football i know you know we often talk about the nfl the nfl i think has, has sort of perfected that idea 16 game season though of course oh, what's oh, it just oh, done oh. what's it just done <laughs> <laughs> this week is is our weekly nfl comparison this week they've added they've added a 17th game there um, you go. But they had there to they had to wait until they renegotiated all their commercial deals. Yeah. Uh with the agreement of the players, and they take out one of their preseason games. So I think preseason goes from four to three. Yeah. And they add in a 17th game. It's um from the stuff that I've read, it's the first change to a schedule in 40 odd. It's the, the first change yeah. that they've done in, yeah. in 40 odd years. And they are the majority of stuff that I've read seems to be welcoming it and it gets rid of an irrelevant preseason yeah. and they do that. But but it, it does, you know, when we always do that comparison, actually they're identical at the moment because they're adding more stuff as well. We all thought that this Swiss model was a sort of foregone inclusion. There's been lots of moaning and grumbling around the edges. There have even been letters from member associations from basically the FA was one that, that wrote and said, look, we're a bit alarmed about the number of games and this access issue. I thought UEFA were going to ignore all that, basically because the clubs had them over a barrel. What's happened this week is it turns out the clubs aren't completely agreed because they are a great big amorphous mass that can't agree on everything. And there is this underlying tension between the ECA and UEFA. And has UEFA, there, you know, has it found its voice? Has it, is there a line that it won't cross? Has it found its backbone? You know, it does not want to cede commercial control of the Champions League to the big clubs. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. That was a really worrying time being a Rangers fan, not knowing if you'd have a team to support or not. The Scottish Football League's only acceptable position will be to place Rangers FC into the third division. It wasn't so much a football match you were involved in as a test of manhood. And with your support along the way, we will get back to where we belong. From the bottom to the top, the journey is over. Rangers are back. It all ended spectacularly in Europe when he had an argument with Rangers fans in a bush. It's a huge huge honour for me to be sat here now to be the manager of Rangers and you know the excitement levels are very difficult to contain at the moment. Drilled by Arfield, Conor Goldson looking to score again and he has scored again and Rangers are in such a good place now. Everybody in Scotland was talking about 10 this at the start of the season and the only number they're now talking about is 55. To get the full story of the fall and rise of Rangers subscribe now 
to be on the headline. Let's bring in Rona Eva, Executive Director of Football Supporters Europe, uh, which is an independent, democratic, non-profit association of football fans. You are often called, first of all, just to set up your organisation, Ronan, you, you are often called into these kind of meetings, I guess, to put the fans' perspective. Is that how it works for you as an organisation? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that, that, that's at least how we, how we imagine it. We are speaking with UFA, but also with other football governing bodies or, or European public institutions uh, on behalf of, of fans, yes. Then, depending on the topic, we are, we are more or less involved, but at least we usually get the chance to bring our perspectives to the table. Do you find, in general, that fans in Scotland, Germany, Belgium... Spain all tend to have similar opinions about how the game should be run. Or Kazakhstan or Iceland or yes, Albania. Yeah, yeah. They're different fan culture and there's a different approach to the game and and different expectations. Nevertheless, there's a common understanding of football and there's a, we all have things in common. I think to a certain extent the same understanding of football. And uh, in the midst of uh, the current pandemic and a financial crisis, I think we're more or less all on the same level. Of course, we have different budgets and we have different purchasing power depending on the countries where we where we come from, but uh, we all have the same passion for the game on one side and on the other, they're the same form of financial sailing of the money we can involve in, in we can invest into the game. Which brings me on to, to the tweet that your organisation put out and comes off the back of mine and Matt's conversation about... Uh, football having to mean something, jeopardy, competition, how less is more is a good thing at times. And your tweet was, most supporters do not want, nor can we afford more football. Instead, we want better football. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, Ronan, and I know in a lot of these things we're meant to be impartial, but I saw that tweet <laughs> and I thought, hallelujah, thank God for that. That's absolutely spot on. Thanks. I appreciate. There's no demand for more games, you know? I mean, there might be a market somewhere in the world that wants more European games, but from the people that, that from the match-going fans, the one that, that, that uh, sustain their clubs, that bring, you know, that contribute to the game, that, that contribute to the spectacle and so on, there's no demand for more games. There's a demand for, for more balanced competition. There's a demand for maybe less dead games. And in general, a demand, yeah, for, 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 for better, for fair football. But, but multiplying the European games, there's strictly no demand from that. And we are, on one side, we, we, we're very confident that this is, this is, this is a, a position that is widely amongst our members. But then the independent studies, and I'm not talking about the one from the ECA, but the one from the CIES, shows that there's no demand. People just want football to be more unpredictable and then and the competitions to be to be to be more interesting yeah when you make those points in in a in a speech to uefa or eca or they read your paper what kind of reaction do you get well <laughs> uh, we haven't had the chance to present uh, this position to the eca the eca despite uh, despite um, mission statement on their website saying that they're all about social responsibility, I'm still failing to see this uh, part of their, their mission statement uh, being delivered. This, they, they're not interested in dialogue. We, we hear words of, of, of progress, of, of bringing football to the next level and so on, but it, in many ways, 
uh, some of the top, the big clubs at the top of the game are managing football like it was 30 years ago. And now it's very paternalistic, top-down approach without involving any of the stakeholders, not just us. And there's there's a discontent, discontent for, for many of the of the independent stakeholders in football. So we've never had the chance to share that position with DCA. With UEFA, UEFA knew our, our red lines, which were from the beginning, you know, no weekend games, no increase of the number of games, and a generally a protection of the of what what's the heart of football, which is which are the domestic competitions, the domestic cups. So to a certain extent, we we've been heard when it comes to some of the red lines. But then, yeah, the, the on the extension of the number of games on the access list, we disagree. We sort of agree to disagree. We shared our position. We made it clear that again. We can't be made, us fans can't be made responsible for the, for the, uh, for the increase in the number of games because simply there is no, there is no demand. On top of this, I mean, it's a bit of a warning to, to everybody in the football industry that what we see on the ground is that people have, much, have less and less money to invest into football. You know, TV subscriptions, uh, home games, away games, merchandise. I mean, they, so many people have been furloughed, lost their jobs, and, and the, the economy is, is going through, the European economy is going through an historical crisis. This fantasy of a forever growth of the economy of football, that's, we want, to, we want to, to tell the people that are still trying to, you know, to maintain the sustain, unsustainable model that there is a limit. And, and, and this limit is much lower now than it's been in the past. And I don't, the PPV uh, campaign by English fans, I mean, the, that, and then the money yeah. donated to banks, is a really good example of uh, the fact that we are, we're not entirely a captive audience. Yes, a lot of fans will be ready to pay a lot of money to continue to follow their team. But there is, there's a sailing and, and you can't do whatever you want and the fans will follow you. There's a point, there's a, there's a breaking point. And, um, and the more we antagonize the, the match going fans, the, the, the less they will be ready to invest money into, into football. You mentioned that you haven't had a chance to speak to the European Club Association. I, I heard you give a very good presentation to the European leagues. Now, I know uh, we talked before you joined us. I tried to explain all these different organizations. Very broadly speaking, European leagues represent the domestic leagues and they are, I would say, opposed to radical reform of the Champions League. And the European Club Association represent the big clubs and they're very much in favour. Now, there is a compromise on the table that the European leagues are pushing. You've mentioned your red lines. It does appear that the domestic leagues have admitted they're not going to get those red lines and you have to sort of meet in the middle, which, of course, I think as adults, we, we would we, 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 we grasp, right? We understand compromise. The compromises, let's say, could be, for example, instead of 10 extra games, you have eight games, so just two. Sorry, not 10 extra games. Instead of 10 guarantee games, you have, you have eight, which is just two extra games. And perhaps we could, you know, instead of having the, uh, the access you know, those two extra slots given to, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh placed giants, you give them to the champions of Switzerland, Scotland, wherever, right? Russia, Turkey. Would you accept that as a compromise right now? A, a, a bigger Champions League, the next, the next iteration of the Champions League, but not too radical. Yeah, of course, that's a question we ask ourselves and in the discussion with the European leagues. Eight games is definitely better than 10 games. Now, the problem is that um, it's also, we're opening the door to more games because we know that the what's interesting with the Swiss model is that you can expand the number of games forever. Yeah, that's, 
that's a system that the beauty of the systems, and I'm quoting uh, Andrea Agnelli here, is that you can it, it's expandable without changing the actual format. So eight games today can mean, I mean, eight games in 2024 can mean 10 games three years later and, 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 and so on and so forth. So yes, it's better, but still we, we don't necessarily agree with the European leagues on this. On the access, 100%, if there are four extra seats, they should go to champions. And we, we're not conservative, we're not nostalgic, but I think a lot of us remember the time when the Champions League was about uh, champions. The Scottish, the, the Swiss champion, are, are not, are, have to go through qualifying rounds. So yes, definitely. If there are four extra seats, they should go to champions because these two extra seats going to, to clubs qualifying through the coefficient, I'm sure you discussed it uh, before, it's, it's, it's a precedent and it's a very worrying precedent. And yes, it's just two clubs for now. But again, there is a possibility to extend this in the future. And I think this should be an absolute red line for the for the whole of European football. The ECA have their interest, the UEFA has their interest, and 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 and, um, and and the leagues have their interest. But we there's a need at some point of a regulator that says there's there's a red line and we're not getting, going further than this. And that's when the football associations and national associations have a role to play as well. We know a lot of them see the risk and we know a lot of them disagree. But so far, especially in the major football associations, only, only English, the English one, the FA, has voiced some, some, some concerns. And, um, and, and they're the guardians of football some, in some regards. And, and there is a need of a regulator. And we know that football has difficulties to regulate itself. But if even... The, 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 the FAs are not stepping up now to, 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 to establish this as a red line. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic about the future of the game. Can I go back to the discussion on, on fan behaviour? And I mean, you mentioned obviously the, the rebellion against pay-per-view that, that, was in, that was in England and money donated to food banks instead. Do you see a pattern across Europe of fans, I mean, it's difficult at the moment because of the pandemic, I appreciate, of fans being less engaged with top-flight football. And interestingly, the second part, do you see an increase in fans being engaged with, say, their local lower league club more, where it is a, is a bit more traditional, I suppose, for want of a better word. We see a pattern, definitely. One of the worrying signs at the moment is the number of, of lifelong match-going fans, national team fans that have uh, returned their tickets for the Euro. People that haven't missed a tournament in 30 years and then for financial reasons or out of maybe temporary disinterest for the game, have returned their tickets at the first occasion. And, and, and we've been surprised by some of the profiles of the fans that have returned their tickets. So I think this is, this. of course, this is national team football, but this is a, this is a worrying sign. Then um, in terms of disengagement, I mean, it's really hard to get a fan, a fan group alive at the moment. You can't gather. I mean, there are some countries where we see some gathering outside of the stadiums and some, some social activities that have to do with the, with the pandemic, you know, helping people in need. But uh, in general, it's really hard for a fan group to, 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 to keep on going. And we've seen a few of them disappearing. And um, yeah, football on TV is not very attractive. I myself barely watch it. There's nothing, you know, much happening. And that's the proof that once you <laughs> you don't have anyone in the stadium, I mean, it's still a sport, but it's a sport like like another. Yeah, it's losing it's losing its 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 cultural its uh, its its social um, value, and that's also should be a warning sign to the people 
Andrea Agnelli or other people in European football that, are, that have this fantasy of the fan of tomorrow because the fan of tomorrow, someone watching TV on the other side of the globe is also doing it because there's this life around the pitch and there's a culture and they want to be part of it and they want to identify themselves with it. So if there's no one in the stadium and if you antagonize your, your community, your fan base, your product, so to say, is ruined and then you become a sport like another, which is not bad, eh? but... Uh, it's not, it becomes as exciting as biathlon. <laughs> or, or, and I'm actually sitting here with a baseball hat on, I say, I've got a New York Mets hat, but a Mets hat on, but, but maybe becomes a bit more like baseball where there are, you know, God knows how many games in a, in a regular season, but very rarely do you see a full stadium because it's it's a it's a night out for a few thousand, but you're not going to go. Well, maybe some people do go to every single game, but there are a hundred games. Oh, and, um, yeah. what we see again in France, uh, talking about what I know the best, is that uh, there's a, there's a decrease of the TV ratings for football. I mean, obviously, that has to do with all the mess around around Mediapro, but uh, other sports are growing. Formula One is do, doing really well. Um, cycling is doing really well. There are more and more uh, cycling uh, races being broadcasted. So the risk of a lost generation is is real. And on the other side, the chasing um, e-sport, Amer- American franchise sport, which is a bit of the approach of this year. When you when you listen to Andreas Agnelli, he's not a, he's basically what he's saying is that football should adopt the same marketing and and and, and regulations, uh, strategies, approach than than e-sport. But, but I don't want to watch esport. Or if I want, to, or if we want to watch esport, we watch esport. But that football becomes um, a secondhand product uh, that is trying to chase the way esport is being marketed. Uh, that that's not that's not going to work. So yeah, they, 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 those, they, I think the football industry should focus on its on its core, on on, on what has made it special, instead of uh, trying to chase other 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 industries. Ronan, we we often when we talk about this subject, when I write about it, I often get responses from fans, kind of the people I think you represent, who say, just let them go. If the big clubs want to do this, goodbye. We'll, we'll, have, we'll carry on having our domestic league, right? Ha- having, having cup competitions that, we, that are meaningful to us. My town versus your town, right? Which is basically what has driven football as a professional sport, all professional sport forever, Okay. What's the answer, though? Because I think you you sit in meetings where you know, you know that it's not that simple. You mm. know that you can't just say goodbye to PSG, mm. Man United, Barca Real. What do you say to those people? I think it's a very, there's a very, that's a very common feeling, in, in, especially in France, in Germany or in Italy, where basically it's been one winner for the last uh, 10 years. I feel like that myself, too, uh, at times. It's a position that we have to, I don't know, um, to balance with the with the the, the importance of uh, of the of the pyramid of the redistribution scheme of the solidarity payments and of the European model of sport as a whole, which is based on on solidarity and subsidiarity and so on. So, w- w- what we tell to, to 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 people or groups that are that are that are interested <laughs> that are that that arguing that yeah they should walk away and football will be better without them is that uh, the football industry is going to be very different. All the money will most of the money will go into 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 the super league or whatever whatever competition they are living uh, for and that uh, yeah it will endanger 
thousands and thousands of jobs and it will danger the, the, our clubs. And in many European countries, just like England, if your club is bankrupt, it, it's gone, it's, it's over, you, you're done, yeah? So that's, uh, that's a risk that, uh, in our opinion, football sh sh shouldn't take. Although there's obviously a temptation that we might have a more ethical uh, football after that, sustainable football after that, but, but that's, that would be a very risky bet to take. And to answer Mark's previous question, I think on the, on the fact that uh, fans would go and support local teams, I think that this, I think there's, that's a temptation for a lot of fans as well. And we all have two choices, basically. Try to change the system or just consider it as broken and, and, and go back to you know, the, the simple pleasure of um, paying five euros at the at the gates and having a, watching the game and having a beer with your friends, and uh, I think at the time of pandemics, a, a lot of fans would would give a lot of money just for that pleasure, and um, and yeah, the temptation is real, and um, I think I think I think it's honest if you think the system is broken and you and you don't want to have anything to do with it anymore, then. Then you go back to the to this yeah to the most simple pleasure of enjoying a football game. Uh, Ronan, we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been it's yeah. been fascinating. Thank you very much. Bye. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. To finish today, Matt, you've been talking to an executive from the City Football Group. So this is obviously the organisation that owns Manchester City and a few other sides as well, including Mumbai City. And that was the focus of this interview you did. Absolutely. Well, look, we talked about City Football Group before. We talked about the whole concept of multi-club models and CFG are perhaps the most famous. They've got 10 clubs around the world, as you mentioned. Mumbai City, they bought them in 2019. They play in the Indian Super League. And they have just achieved some considerable success. You know, another winner in the CFG group. They won the regular season shield, which is called the Supporters Shield. So they won the regular season title. And then they followed that up by winning the sort of playoffy based ISL Cup. So lots of success for them. They're very pleased with themselves. They played, in a, they played in a bubble in Goa because of COVID. And I spoke to um, Damien Willoughby, who is the chief executive of uh, CFG India, to sort of work out how it went, or to talk about how it went, and you know, plans for the future and the growth of the game in India. Well, here come Mumbai. We're over the four minutes added time. They'll just be happy to keep the ball in the Mumbai half. And there goes the whistle. And Mumbai City become just the second team to top the league and win the final following Bengaluru two years ago. It's Mumbai with their first trophy. The hero ISL champions for 2020-21, Mumbai City FC. Well, Damien, thanks very much for joining us. First of all, let me just start really with a really obvious one. Explain a little bit about your role and then what you have just achieved. 
Thanks, Matt. I'm uh, the CEO for City Football India. The, the City Football India entity that was created and established back at the end of November 2019, when the group announced their intention to acquire a majority shareholding of 65% in Mumbai City. That transaction is, is still working its way through the regulatory process. We hope it reaches its natural conclusion here in the summer. Um, but what we've been doing since is working in a consultative capacity uh, with Mumbai City and its current shareholders um, in terms of planning for the ISL season seven, which is just uh, which just completed, and looking at how we can support the development of the club, but also uh, football more generally in India. The second part of the equation for us is looking at uh, the considerable opportunity that exists in India for City Football Group and obviously uh, our sort of foundational marquee brand in Manchester City to create uh, and generate interest and fandom and value in in our in our properties in India. Well, you you very modestly didn't didn't answer the second bit, which I, which I wasn't really so much about the the background regulatory stuff. It was about what you've done on the field. Don't be bashful. What what have Mumbai City just done? We've enjoyed a, a you know phenomenal season. Um, we've uh, managed to achieve what's never been achieved in in the context of the Indian Super League, which is winning the regular season. We finished the the regular season and, and uh, secured the ISL Shield which secures um, participation into uh, the Asian Champions League, which is clearly a, a very prestigious and competitive tournament. Not only did we win that trophy, but we then went off to win the ISL trophy uh, as part of the playoff. Yeah, we're delighted. It's been, a, it's been a, an amazing season, both in terms of clearly on pitch, uh, but it's been a, you know, a hugely challenging um, experience for everyone living, operating in a biosecure bubble in Goa, where the league was taking place for uh, almost six months. We've seen TikTok videos of tennis players at the Australian Open. We're aware of, you know, what's been going with cricket players going in and out of the squad. Well, you know, six months. I mean, that's 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 quite a shift. All those sports, you know, did it for a reason, right? To keep the show on the road, to meet broadcast commercial contracts. And that would be exactly the same, of course, for the Indian Super League. You know, it was, I'm, I'm guessing it was behind closed doors, right? So Correct. how how is it perceived to have done? You know, how was it watched? What what are you hearing back in terms of feedback? It's been a huge success. So um, in terms of the the league, uh, Indian Super League is sixty five percent owned by by Reliance and thirty five percent owned by uh, by Star, which is ultimately owned by by Disney. Um, they broadcast the games. They do a phenomenal job in terms of um, giving us an omnipotent platform uh, across the country, available in multiple languages, multiple regions, and the broadcast numbers were up something like sixteen percent. Uh, the engagement people were, were were delighted, obviously, that they were be able to be distracted from again the challenges that COVID was creating for everyone and could obviously consume and watch sport and uh, and top flight football here in India so yeah the, the feedback and the response from an audience standpoint has been great sponsors were delighted as well so I think it was important given the the foothold that the Indian Super League has generated in the country you have to remember it's a, a very embryonic league it's only this was its seventh season um, and and I said uh, the league and, and Star have done a phenomenal job at embedding uh, football and, and the football culture into into the Indian sporting landscape and it was important that there wasn't any interruption to that but it was done in a safe and secure manner and uh, the growth today is 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 fantastic and the runway for Indian football is 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 hugely exciting. Who are some of the names that that, that featured in this most recent season? Some you know some of the more recognizable names. I think there was probably a bit of a pivot and a shift obviously again when they were trying to launch the league and effectively sort of re-energize the the sport of football in India there was a whole raft of um uh, you know sort of marquee signings that came and plied their trade for very short periods of time because the event was very uh, condensed the season was only a few months so you had the Nicholas and Elkers the 
Diego Forlans, who both played for Mumbai City, the John Arlerisas, the Robert Pirozes. So at the beginning, the, the league and the clubs really relied on these players to elevate the profile of the league and the sport. Um, and I think they did, again, an excellent job at doing that. I think what we've seen is is a real migration to, to securing and attracting players that are maybe, you know, at a different stage in their career. So actually this year, there, there weren't probably any too, there weren't too many globally recognised players that, that, you know, the average football fan around the world would recognise. There's been a, a real shift in strategy for a lot of the clubs to try and um, secure players that will overall uh, elevate the standard and quality of the league. Um, so that's probably been the, the major kind of shift in, in approach. Well, that makes sense. And, I'm, and I suppose the question that, you know, that follows that really is what City Football Group is trying to achieve there. Is this about, again, sort of expanding the name? You know, is it a strategic thing? Do you feel that you need to be in this massive market? Is it about developing players that might fit in and play somewhere else? Is it a bit of both? Is it to make, is it just a great investment? Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of a, a number of the factors you reference. I think first and foremost, we see an opportunity with Indian football. We think in investing in Mumbai City uh, represents a, a great opportunity for us to support the development and growth of that club. As I said, historically, the league has been very event focused. It's transitioning into a more recognised season in terms of duration, which gives us a platform to develop young players by virtue of playing more games and honing their skill and their craft and giving coaches and managers more time on the training pitch with them. So we see a real opportunity in the next 5, 10, 15 years to help uh, nurture and develop young talent, both for Mumbai, but also for the Indian national team, which has similarly been on, a, been on a, a positive growth trajectory and improvements over the last several years with their coach, Eagle Steamatch. We think that there is... Um, I said a growing um, interest in, in football, um, in uh, major European football clubs, obviously, and we're fortunate with Manchester City, we have an iconic marquee foundational brand within our, our portfolio. So there's a huge amount of interest in Manchester City, the scope to develop players, but it is going to take a bit of time for the maturity of, of, of that kind of area. So I think it's a combination of the factors that you referenced that we see nothing but upside across a, a variety of uh, uh, kind of areas within the, the football ecosystem. So we're excited to be present. Uh, the country is... Uh, you know, is a is a huge opportunity across lots of different industries and sectors. 1.3 billion people, um, very young uh, demographic, um, increasing media consumption, affinity towards brands. So, I, I think when you layer in all those factors, it's a really positive opportunity for us. And I think the the beauty of City Football Group is the, the knowledge and experience that we've gained over uh, many years across many markets should hopefully support that growth of the sport. Here. What does City Football Group kind of bring to Mumbai City? What are the benefits about being part of a multi-club model for Mumbai City? I mean, is it tapping into guys like you? Is it being able to pick up the phone and speak to Pep Guardiola? I mean, what are, what are the links at the moment? The access to um, the level of experience and knowledge and expertise that we possess across the group is, um, is, is really compelling and advantageous for all of our clubs around the world. And I think Mumbai, Mumbai City has absolutely benefited from that this year. Um, you know, they were the group were heavily involved in, I said, advising the current uh, shareholders in terms of uh, the selection uh, process and criteria for a new head coach, um, how we prepare for a season, how they maintain fitness and sharpness during the close season, how we dealt with the bio bubble, uh, relying on, said, you know, the, the sort of sports psychology component that clearly came into play, uh, the ability to tap into um, the insights around latest trends in, in performance analysis or, or coaching methodology. So 
I think having that level of support at the fingertips of the coaching staff and the people in Mumbai, I think our coach has been very vocal about the benefit that he's felt and the support that he's felt during the course of the season. Well, that's I mean, on-field success is certainly going to help, isn't it? There's absolutely no doubt that India's a massive market, hugely important to the Premier League as well. Um, you know, so look, you clearly, clearly, you, you have to be there, you know, one, in one shape or another. But look, not everybody, though, whilst the, you know, no doubt agreeing with all of that, feels that you actually need to own a club. And that's something that kind of, you know, the people often when they look at CFG, they say, well, you know, there's sort of one one profitable club there and you're up to like nine loss-making clubs now. And let's be honest, because of COVID, it's probably going to be 10 loss-making clubs this year. I know that's an exception. So, you know, I just I'll, I'll happily accept that as a caveat. When when is all this going to make money, or is it not important? When 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 is it? When are we going to see the returns of this multi-club, really strategic, being in all the right markets model? Manchester City has been in a in a profitable position for many years now. Um, clearly, the investments we're making in these other geographies they take time to evolve and develop and get to a sustainable position. But that's absolutely the objective, and and our operation in in India and Mumbai is no different. I think where we're very fortunate and lucky is we have an ownership group and a leadership. Um, that's committed to um, long-term um, view and approach to, to how they build and create value. And I think we've seen that across, obviously, Manchester City is the best reference point of that. And we believe that in these strategic markets where we have a presence and we have knowledge and we're authentically there and ingrained in the day-to-day business of football in these countries, um, we, you know, we're convinced that they will uh, get into a position where they are, they are break-even businesses and, uh, and contributing to the overall value of, of City Football group you know we obviously like to think we're we're one of the few that has um physical presence representation connectivity to football fans in these geographies around the world that you reference so um yeah i think i think we're getting to there it's going to take time but um that's the case in, in most sectors and in most industries around the world where's next then you, you, that's 10 you, you, you're sort of going around the globe ticking ticking boxes where's next yeah, I mean, uh, there are a number of uh, geographies around the world that are clearly interesting to us, both from a football development and a talent perspective. And as you see within the current portfolio, uh, clubs uh, meet different objectives for us, um, whether that's on the football side in terms of creating pathways for players and talent, or we see commercial opportunity and value to be generated. So um, I think we're, there's a couple more markets, as, as you probably can imagine, that, that are interesting to us, both uh, uh, in South America and Asia, uh, and we'll continue to evaluate what is the best best uh, entry point and the best club to to uh, to work with in these geographies good luck and take care thanks matt appreciate it right that's it don't forget you can subscribe to the athletic for a special price of three pounds 99 a month for six months so that's 40 percent off the full price of a subscription you'll get the uh, analysis the in-depth features from the very best football writers around and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. We're back next week. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.